Seven years ago, former Googler Britt Morin founded our own media company, Brit & Co. What Morin saw was a generation of young women who were interested in doing, but didn't have their own source of inspiration. Brit & Co.'s mantra, see, learn, do. I'm Brian Morrissey, and this is the Digiday Podcast. In this week's episode, I am joined by Morin to discuss lessons from the tech world that have helped her build a media business, the elasticity of Brit & Co.'s brand beyond her own personality, and why she decided to go the VC funding route. Hope you enjoy it. Britt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you're seven plus years in now? Almost seven years in, yeah. Okay, so let's go back. You had worked at YouTube, mm-hmm. right? And then you got the entrepreneurial itch. Why... Mm-hmm. In the world media why not do an app <laughs> or something um i was very naive no um i was working on a product called google tv which has now evolved into chromecast and youtube tv and i was very young i had no experience working in media i'd only had experience working in tech and part of my job was to help build the software product and user experience for Google TV and then market it out to the consumers. And so if we wanted a great product, we needed great content. And I was in the offices of every major network, all the operators, basically just begging them to give us their video content. This is probably 2008, 2009. Almost all of them said no. <laughs> and <laughs> they could not give us their content because they were either locked into contracts with the cable operators for a number of years. They didn't have engineers who knew how to put it into the right format for us, so we had to build it. Or they just fundamentally didn't believe in putting long-form premium video on the internet. And that shocked me because, as you know, I was working at YouTube and everyone was putting video on the internet. Not long-form, but short-form. Very low quality, but Mm -hmm. still amassing millions of views, millions of subscribers, And it dawned on me that it was going to take the traditional media companies a while to catch up to this new digital media ecosystem and that there was a big opportunity to create premium content for this millennial generation rather than, you know, people facing their cameras in their bedrooms um, talking about how their day was, which I still think is relevant and serves a a need in in many forms. But um, and then I, I also noticed at Google and YouTube that how-to queries were some of the most popular search mm-hmm. um, terms. And I had a passion for that my whole life. I was always into creative stuff, learning how to do things, doing it myself. Um, and everything, not just you know household things, but learning to code and learning um, how to decorate my house. And so I wanted to basically create the first new type of premium media company for this generation of women. And yet it was always meant to be, you know, media was the window into the rest of the business. And really it's a direct to consumer brand Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And I think you're starting to see this trend. Did that evolve? Because I mean, when you're talking about a time when there was like Howcast and Mm -hmm. demand and eHow and all the how, (laughs) all the how to, (laughs) how to boil water and, and, and whatnot. Um, how to change bike tire. I think I used but that. But that's so basic. It was so sterile. It still kind of is. It's it's useful. It's utilitarian. But there was no personality behind it. No, the how to, how to change a bike tire had very little <laughs> personality. Yeah. And it's brutally effective. Though. Yeah. And and I think I'm, I am the target audience. 
we as millennial women were and still are sort of aspiring for a girlfriend or Uh an older sister type of figure to teach us how to do these things. So you wanted to build a brand. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I think the the weakness of a lot of those how-to video things is that they didn't have a brand, like you're saying. I mean, they were sort of sterile Mm -hmm. um, and very interchangeable. Mm -hmm. Um, So how did the... How did how did starting this from a Silicon Valley standpoint change how you were looking at building a media brand versus the sort of New York point of view, to be mm-hmm. blunt about it? Well, the original business plan was to create content as a form of free acquisition marketing, essentially. And then we were going to create utilitarian apps in different categories. We started with weddings. Mm-hmm. Um, so we created a wedding website builder called Weduary, which actually used the Facebook Connect login um, so that all of your guests would be socially connected by the time they got to your wedding and therefore all the single people could meet each other before and so on and so forth. And we created a bunch of wedding content um, that, uh, that drove to that app. And, and so that was kind of the whole idea of our funnel has always been to use content as that top of the funnel and then drive to a conversion somewhere else. And what we didn't expect was that people just loved the content and and they were converting into the app, but really they wanted more of the content Mm -hmm. and they wanted it in different categories. And, you know, when we're, you're a small startup, you really need to pick a focus. And so we did, we, we doubled down on content, always knowing that we would continue to convert our consumer to something else in the future. In my very first seed deck, uh, when I was raising venture capital, our funnel slide said, see, learn, buy, do. And it was the whole idea that we were always going to have these four lines of business, um, that we would start with content first, because I think a lot of these commerce brands who then go into content, content feel very inauthentic. Um, and then we would slowly evolve to have a learning part of our offering and merchandising part of the offering and an experiential part of the offering. Mm-hmm. So how do you take the best of what Silicon Valley um, does without getting sort of too pulled into that direction? Because I think mm-hmm. with media, a lot of times, look, the content is what builds the brand, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times the sort of Silicon Valley viewpoint um, is very heavily into the technology part. Mm-hmm. Um, you can build media brands without, without a pipes. lot of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can start to get into um, the trap of like everything has to be an app and things like right. this. And you've got like engineers and they're very expensive. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard in Silicon Valley. <laughs> you've heard. You don't have them here. We, yeah. No, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me at Google was, you know, making data driven decisions, having data teams. Um, A-B testing, everything. I mean, we tested the shade of blue like 20 times before we decided on the button at Google. Um, And so we started doing that early on at Britain Co. And it actually paid off pretty well. I mean, today we're one of the top, if not the top, publisher on Pinterest. And one of the reasons for that is as a very visual brand, we were really a- experimenting in A-B testing with our pennant buttons on all across all of our images very early on. And we found one iteration of the pennant button that had like a 20x conversion mm-hmm. for our users to pin the images. And so we just took off on Pinterest. And I think it helped that it was early. It was 2011, 2012 when Pinterest was just taking off. But still to this day, we're reaching half of the Pinterest 
audience every month, which is huge. And we're one of their closest partners on all the things they tested. And that was all as a result of really starting my company with a data driven you know, pers- mm-hmm. perspective. And, but and that won't get you to a brand. I mean, you can't growth hack your way to a brand. You can't. You, I mean, that's where the art and science kind of blend together as you know, right? I mean, I hired, my first hire was a creative. Uh, my second hire was an engineer. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so I was pretty balanced for the first six months. Okay. So explain why you decided to sort of personalize the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, there's upsides and downsides to that. There's another learning from YouTube, but also from social media in general at the time, in 2010, 2011, the people I was following on social media that I actually felt like I had a connection with were humans. And, and at YouTube even, when really big brands joined and created YouTube channels, whether it was like Budweiser or Ford or whatever, they didn't really see the same type of engagement. Every video that they put out, no matter how high quality it was, felt like an ad. And so it dawned on me that the future of brands were human brands. And even today, you know, the top brands on Instagram are like Selena Gomez and and Mm -hmm. Beyonce and Taylor Swift. And, and it just feels like someone is channeling an authentic message to you. And and actually, if you look back at brands 100 years ago, and the whole notion of a brand came from like stamping cattle with your last name, right? So when your goods moved across the country, people knew whose it was. And and so you saw Hershey and Disney and Rockefeller and all these brands being named after people. And part of the Britain Co. um, mission is all around kind of reinvigorating that maker spirit, that creative spirit, the entrepreneurial spirit, and I love the idea that in small town America and like Main Street, you know, you see like Jane's Nails and Fred's Auto Shop and you know Fred and you know Jane and, and, and there's something about that real connection that you have with the founder that makes you want to go deeper and, and ask questions. And even to this day, I am answering every tweet, every mm-hmm. Instagram message, every email. This does not sound scalable in the Silicon Valley. <laughs> it's not, time. but it's... But it creates that that community that mm-hmm. just loves you. And but the brand is about more than you. Correct. Right? So how do you balance that? Because there's mm-hmm. definitely an advantage to, like you said, having it tied to a person. But there is a disadvantage to it. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're if you're targeting uh, young women, the fate of young women and young men is is the same. It's to get older. <laughs> um, yep. So. Does the audience then follow you through your life stages? Some of them do, but part of the strategy was creating Brit and Co. <laughs> and, and Co. does not mean company. Um, to us, it means community. And if, if you're a real insider, you know that. And we've started now really dialing up who our Co. is. And, and there's sort of different levels of the Co. Um, from our like most passionate users and fans to our class teachers and our blogger partners and influencers. Um, And we're really starting to even think about who are the five to 10 women who have a different type of expertise in a different space, whether it's cooking, interior design, photography, um, even coding, and and have good size followings already. Um, And how can we start to integrate them into the Britain Co. platform more and more into our video series, into television opportunities, book opportunities, um, and really think about 
building almost like a very boutique MCN, you know, Mm -hmm. um, of human brands that are all tailored towards a young female audience. And so we might have a 22 year old as part of the co. And even though I'm 32, you know, she is galvanizing that younger audience. And I really Mm -hmm. do think that, um, it keeps us young, even while some of us might grow old. Quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Each week, publishers on this podcast talk about how they're diversifying their businesses and often adding in a subscription component. Well, we are no different. Digiday Plus is our premium membership program for people in media, marketing, tech, even investors. Uh, It helps you get a leg up. And here is how. Digiday Plus members get access to exclusive content. Each day, we have pieces that are only available to them, along with invites to our member events, early access to this podcast, and also our top story of the day the night before, exclusive research we do with top in- about top industry trends, and much more. Please visit digiday.com, and you will see the plus tab on the menu bar. Uh, you will find that Digiday Plus membership is $395 a year, but if you use podcast at checkout, you will get 20% off. Please check it out. I promise you it's worth it. How important is it to stay young? You use the M word. I try, I'm, I've been swearing off the M word. Yeah. But look, I mean, the M word people are, are having children, they're getting older, <laughs> and yet I feel like sometimes when we talk about them, we are acting like they've stayed 23 or something mm-hmm. like this. Um, so with the brands that have focused on this younger demographic, what I always wonder, and I was talking with Carly and Danielle from from mm-hmm. The Skim, and I asked them the same question. I was like, "Are you? does the brand age up with mm-hmm. this demographic when you're tying to a demographic, or do you stay put and just let people cycle through? Yeah. Someone asked me in my first year of starting Britain Co. whether I was Anna Wintour or Martha Stewart. <laughs> and, okay. and I thought that was a funny analogy. I'm not sure if you do get that. Um, (laughs) Basically, and you know, Vogue has stayed the same age for decades, whereas, you know, Martha Stewart has grown older with and her audience has grown with her. And, and I, I said, I'm Anna Wintour, because I do think, you know, we reach this generation that's largely 1835, going through all these life stages. These are the times at which we've done research on this, you know, women need the most help are looking for the most advice, want to be the most creative, you know, they're decorating nurseries, they're getting married, they're Mm -hmm. buying homes, they don't know what they're doing, they're growing their careers. So they they want that utilitarian advice from that older sister. And and so, but soon older sisters become aunts. Not only, only me um, at this point. <laughs> and that's where we keep refreshing. Like you can add more people into the co. They have their own personal brands, plus they're integrated into Britain Co. Maybe you know, ten years from now, I'll have my own following on all of my social channels. But the Britain Co. You know, social channels and website will still feel like it does today. And so my audience can age with me. Um, but the Britain Co. audience at large will remain that 20s and 30-something mm-hmm. you know, age. Y- you went the venture capital route. You've raised a fair amount of money, right? 50, 40, $45 million? Mm-hmm. Explain that decision because media historically has not been a venture business. It went through a period where venture capitalists got media curious and to various results because uh, media typically does not scale obviously in the same way that technology does at least um, when it comes to the multiples it gets in in exits explain why this is a venture business i think there's two reasons one i mean you're seeing the total shift of the media industry right now and i think everyone's still waiting to see what happens and who consolidates and the television dollars moving to digital and all of those things and and you sort of 
a lot of venture capitalists do believe that, you know, with Time Inc. selling and Scripps selling and all of these big traditional media companies selling, there's probably going to be a gap and a multi-billion dollar opportunity for new brands to emerge in the content space. And so that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is that the venture capitalists are really starting to understand the power of direct-to-consumer brands. Mm -hmm. You see everything from like an Outdoor Voices or an Allbirds or a Glossier to like a Goop, um, which was media first and then built into commerce. And it's the power of a brand who has that direct relationship with their audience and can monetize in mm. multiple ways, ultimately at scale, right? And so I think depending on the venture capitalist you ask, there's mm-hmm. different philosophies about why they believe in either of those choices. And and we sort of fall square into the intersection yeah. of those categories. Do you look at Goop as a corollary to what you're doing? It, different, sort of. obviously, with yeah. uh, its vitamins focus. But I mean, it, it is, look, it's a lifestyle brand. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's targeted towards women, obviously. And um, it is around uh, a personality, mm-hmm. too. And it monetizes in ways that are diverse. Yeah. And, it, and it monetizes for the size of its audience. It's, right. it's pretty amazing. Like, yeah, it's how very much. effective at monetizing. I agree. I think you're seeing, you know, the scale brands that are just going for pure reach and then those that are really trying to double down on a specific Mm -hmm. audience with that deep deep engagement because you can ultimately convert them to pay or to to sort of subscribe to you in different ways and so yes I I think Goop is interesting because I feel like she got written off a lot in her early days um, yeah. for just being celebrity, trying to do this thing on the side. And it's it's becoming a real business. Yeah. And, and I'm excited. Well, some of the because- early products, um, <laughs> I think, were almost, I think they were almost used in some ways for marketing because everyone wrote about these unusual mm-hmm. products that she was uh, pushing. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so I think, you know, they push it to the extremes a lot, and you, I don't know if that's part of their marketing I, I, strategy I, or if I it's just a, an audience. I feel like it's a conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, maybe she's just passionate about that kind of stuff. <laughs> so how big does your audience have to be? I mean, I've seen you you talk about a, a, a reach figure that mm-hmm. it's it's hard to, you know, it doesn't match up with the Comscore figure. That mm-hmm. So a lot of these things are hard to sort of diligence, if you will. Yeah. But how big does the audience need to be for you to build a sizable um, and sustainable business. So at this point, you know, media and advertising is about two thirds of our revenue. Um, by 2020, we want it to be about 50, 50, um, 50% media and advertising, 50% education experiences, merch, and that's significant direct payments, direct payments from yeah. consumers. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I think significant because our, our media and advertising business has grown anywhere from 50 to hundred percent every year since the start of the company. And at, and at some point, I was actually listening to your podcast with um, the Mind Body Green folks, mm-hmm. which is it's kind of similar in the fact that we actually have a pretty high level of reach from a distributed landscape. We really have doubled down on branded content more than display advertising. Um, no programmatic running through. We the don't site. do program. We do yeah. We do our own high impact display units, um, and we're part of the Vox 
concert network. But other than that, we're really focused on branded content. And so that has given us the opportunity to put our content on any platform where the consumers are and monetize it there. But, you, but can you monetize it? I mean, we've started to be, yeah, yeah of course, it's still difficult. Like um, Pinterest, you're a big, you're a big we Pinterest actually do publisher. Monetize do you make money Pinterest. off Pinterest? Mm-hmm, yeah, we're, we're very big on Pinterest. And so we work with Pinterest in different ways. And one way is that because we're so good at understanding what type of content is most pinnable, a lot of our brands hire us to create the content for them, almost like a mm-hmm. creative agency. Um, in other ways, they want us to push it out through our account, and some want us to push it out through our co, our, all of these influencers that we have who are also big pinners. So we monetize that platform effectively. Um, Snapchat, same thing. It's sort of like we're making some of the Snap ads in addition to feeding them through a, a Discover mm-hmm. channel. Facebook is more of like amplification of video content and branded content. So... Um, the distributed reach number does matter. Um, we're starting to also do more with video. And so thinking about where video distribution goes in the future, we have partners like Verizon and Disney where we're actually amplifying a lot of our reach through those platforms. So the, o- you know, I, I think this is the classic debate in media right now, of like O&O distributed. How do you qual- quantify your reach? Now people are talking more about O&O. Go figure. <laughs> it's all come back around and email yeah. and, and like push notifications. Um, yeah, our our O and O audience; these are the loyalists, right? I mean, these. I would. I don't. I would rather have ten million uniques than twenty million uniques if that means that they are real people um, that we didn't pay for, yeah, and that are like obsessed with our content and not fly by and not fly by impressions yeah. in the feed. I mean, obviously, everyone's going from extremes with Facebook, and now people have said we never relied on Facebook. We never. Never, <laughs> never, never, never. Exactly. Even though they were on this podcast bragging about how many Facebook video views they oh, got. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, totally. I, I literally have the tapes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we've all, we, you probably, I mean, we have tapes too. Of, we've probably only ever been about 40% of our traffic coming from Facebook. That's um, a lot, isn't it? Some, some publishers well, yeah, have been like, like 70 to 90. Um, now we're more like 20. Um, and, and we really amped up. So it hurt, CEO. but it didn't like, I mean, a lot of your stuff, it seems to me, is is geared also towards Google. If it, yeah. Because, you know, there's a lot of, of stuff that's evergreen. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very seasonal too. So, you know, our top content from last year was from 2013 <laughs> around Halloween costumes. It's, you know, and, and, and Halloween starts trending for us in July and August. It's never too early to think um, so about the costumes. No, it's never too early to think about your costume. But it, it, it <laughs> You're going to make it. I mean, well, you might mean, as well. You know, we don't do a lot of hard news. And so, therefore, we, we really do see efficiencies in terms of the volume of content we're putting out. Because, yeah. actually, as time goes on, we, we technically need, don't need to put out as much content. We really just need to resurface some of our past content for yeah. these seasonal moments. So how big is the team? We have about 75 people right now on the team. Okay. I split against New York and SF. And and how many are creating content? Probably 30 to 40. The Tuesday Podcast will be right back after this break. 
Hi, I'm Shreen Patek, and if you enjoy the Digiday podcast, be sure to check out Making Marketing. Join me every Thursday as I sit down with a leader from the industry to discuss what it takes to make great marketing today. Each episode features candid conversation and insight into some of the brightest minds in marketing, including P&G's Mark Pritchard, HP's Antonio Lucio, and GE's Linda Boff. You can find Making Marketing on Digiday.com. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Anchor.fm. I hope you'll listen. Look, this is a pretty crowded space. Mm-hmm. And like, it, how do you end up differentiating the, the type of content? Because a lot of people are putting out Halloween costume ideas. Like mm-hmm. everyone has the same dashboards. They, they know what trends when. Mm-hmm. And so they all try to get in, in front of it. I'm sure Pop Sugar has, has mm-hmm. their Halloween costume mm-hmm. for couples. I'm sure uh, if if he hasn't already, Brian Goldberg is is ordering it up at Bustle right now. <laughs> yep. Not one, fifteen probably exactly on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and at fifty dollars each. No, that was that was before. Sorry. <laughs> How do you end up differentiating? Because a lot of this content, to be honest with you, from and again, maybe it's not geared towards me, but a lot of it seems like very similar. And 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 building a brand is about differentiation. Mm-hmm. But if if you need the Halloween costume ideas. You're going to do the Halloween costume ideas, but it's not mm-hmm. going to really build a brand. So a couple things. One, we tend to stay in our lane um, rather than to go as broad as possible, meaning that, and I don't like talking about other publishers directly because oh, I actually on. have a lot. I, I have a lot of appreciation and respect for everyone's different strategy. But for us, you know, women turn to us to encourage them to do something. And so we're not writing about politics a lot. You know, we're not writing about all these Mm -hmm. hard news topics. We really are trying to stay in that lane of like, how can everything that we write or create be about somehow encouraging or inspiring this woman to take an action? And I think we're really known for that. We've done a bunch of research um, that compares us to all of our competitors in the women's media space. And they do, they come to us almost like a girl boss and, you know, as to Britain Co. It's like Mm -hmm. they want to, be somebody and do something. And so that's one thing. Um, So it's more authentic in that regard. And secondly, we're actually creating a lot of our own content instead of just curating it a lot. So like the Halloween, we've literally probably shot a thousand um, costume shoots <laughs> of Halloween costumes. Okay. Like it's, it's original. We own it. Um, we okay, use so this it. This is not like an hour. Uh, this isn't da- a $50 like post. curate 10 costumes across the internet type of thing. Like, and that's what I think propels us on Pinterest and these other platforms because these is, this is a, these are original ideas that we're creating and mm-hmm. distributing across the internet. But you have to latch on to stuff that's trending, right? I mean, you've got like the Crazy Asians Guide to Singapore and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and a lot of a lot of publishers do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a reason that everyone's writing about the Crazy Asians right now because people are searching for it. Mm-hmm. They're talking about it on, on, on uh, Twitter and on right. Facebook. So, yeah, so I think but that... But it's just about having that spin. I guess to the 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 stuff that that a lot of people are a lot of people are doing you know the recipes and stuff like this, but the the question is how do you end up differentiating? Right, and I, I think that our online learning business is another opportunity for us. So, for instance, maybe we'll write about someone hosted this really amazing Halloween party, and these were all the ways they decorated for it, and the rest of the cocktails they served. Oh, and here's a mixology class if you want to mm-hmm. learn how to make your own drinks too. And and so we try, again, that conversion funnel is so important to us. The content 
is the headline and that's mm-hmm. the way we get all these people in. But really, can we then move them to buy? Can we move right. them to act? And that's such, like no one else is doing that in our category. So outside of media, you're doing classes mm-hmm. where people pay you for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing events. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a pop-up shop. I know. We won right a Digiday Award for you it. We won a Digiday Award for mm-hmm. it. It was right around the corner. Yeah. Um, Did you go? I did not stop in. I walked by it um, on my way to lunch like several times, but I'm not going to. You weren't my target demo. (laughs) That's why. I didn't want to dilute it. (laughs) And then what else are you doing to to make money? And we're doing merch. So we've done multiple products. product lines. Yeah. So see, learn, buy, do. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the classes is really interesting. We have over 130 classes now. Topics ranging from calligraphy to coding. Um, we're working on everything from like financial planning courses mm-hmm. um, to like crypto investing and, and okay. things like that. We've actually it's beyond done beyond making costumes. It's beyond making costumes, it's teaching women how to do things. This crypto uh, summit that we did was a great example. I just read a statistic that 4% of women are crypto investors. This is in December, like at the peak of the hype. Um, but I thought it was really lame that only 4% of women were making any return. I tweeted something about it and I said, why aren't women investing? And every response I got, and I got a lot, said, we just don't know enough about it. We aren't educated. And I said, if count me if, in if I them. put together a, a couple hour event to educate you, would you come? Okay. Sold out within an hour. You know? So you're seeing this elasticity of the brand when it comes to the, the action. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than the traditional, okay, it's going to be about, you know, making costumes and, and making yeah. food. And I think and it'd be very like weird if like Pop Sugar Bustle hosted a cryptocurrency summit. <laughs> but like it was not weird <laughs> for Britain Co. to do that. What other areas are you, are you looking at? And then how do you end up, you know, because I, I, I'm interested in elasticity of brands because, you know, it's really important to stay focused on your core at the same, but at the same time, you can't get myopic about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the classes business, we're continuing to dial that up. We've started to see now that a lot of women are taking multiple courses, they're buying them in bundles. So we're interested in exploring what that could look like on a next level now that we have so many courses. Do they want a subscription to classes? Do they want to buy packs of classes at once? Um, We also are selling classes as sponsored classes, which makes them free for a certain amount of time. And that's been a huge hit with advertisers because, you know, think about it. um, You could buy a 30 second engagement on a branded content piece Mm -hmm. or whatever, or you could buy a 30 to 60 minute engagement where with you know yeah. tens or hundreds but of you'd rather have people. people paying you directly than do it on behalf of a, a sponsor i would guess unless it makes it free for yeah, yeah a period of time and then it goes back yeah if it leads know. down the funnel exactly you know. um so a lot of them are just making you know we don't have to create new content we're making it you know uh, complimentary for that month or so so mm-hmm. that's nice um experiences we're really thinking about that more and more from the simple crypto well from everything from like the crypto summit where it's like very topical and like a night one night event but we're putting it online as well and seeing tens of thousands of women participate live um or um these multi-day events a month-long event i think there's different levels of month-long event that's Mm -hmm. a commitment Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah ticketed ticketed events plus you know, sponsor driven events. I think we've been doing events for so long. 
I consider us to be a leader in the category. Hopefully you do because we we did, you know, something really cool last year. And, and I really think even though it's a crowded space, you know, we want to continue to think futuristic about what do people want out of an experience? And yeah. it's not just to sit down at a conference anymore. It's to make and do and learn all together at once. Yeah. It, it, that's another, it's a very crowded space though. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. lot of particularly female focused media companies that are um, piling into mm-hmm. to festivals. Yep. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what differentiates what. And, right. you know, things like Girl Boss are really interesting models that, that they're trying mm-hmm. to do to make it... Um, somewhat more scalable Mm -hmm. in what regard well because they have these like rallies but then they sell the digital passes to them um which makes it far more scalable well so we're starting to you know we've been doing a version of that as well our events are essentially everything that we offer online in an offline space so it's it's not just the content um but we offer classes at the events we live stream or or you know We'll put up a paywall in front of it. We offer products at the events that you can Mm -hmm. buy and take home with you. So we tend to think about them as just the physical Mm -hmm. manifestation of who we are online. Okay, so how about merchandise? Mm -hmm. So we've launched four different product lines so far with Target stores. We've got um, a few uh, things coming that I can't talk about just yet. Um, But it's interesting because we've, really started to see opportunities in mass retail as well as specialty retail. Retailers are, are one of our biggest categories of advertisers already. And they're very interested in these experiential pop-ups as well because you know they look at us as someone that can really be that 360 brand. We can engage the audience with content. We can actually lure them to a physical location and show mm-hmm. up somewhere. And we can sell them stuff. And so we've started to... Um, negotiate really interesting deals with some of these retailers that are a combination of media buys, pop-ups, and merch. And so those are those are the types of things that you'll see coming mm-hmm. soon. And subscription boxes. <laughs> we did those a while ago. Right. Yeah. Um, so what happened there? Well, we were a pretty young staff and our audience loved it. They all wanted to customize their box. So we were sending them a like a project to do every month and sometimes it would be like a baking project and sometimes it would be make a necklace and um some women really wanted to make jewelry every month and other women really wanted to bake every month and they all wanted it custom and and uh it just became operationally very intensive i wouldn't roll out ever like ever coming back to it but at this point we found more efficiencies in, in going direct to retail instead final thing is the big question when are you gonna be profitable (laughs) Very I'm, guessing soon. Not, I'm guessing you're not probably. very soon uh we've done a very good job this year is is all that i will say and i don't want to jinx anything but um it's it's definitely on the horizon in the very near future okay so the final final thing is why are you optimistic about the media world at a time of a lot of doom and gloom now look a lot of the doom and gloom honestly comes from news publishers. That's why I've had a lot more lifestyle mm-hmm. publishers on this summer. I want to feel... <laughs> the news feel, ones won't even come on anymore. Happier. You're like, no, I'm not I'm doing press. Well, I'm like, my God, I'm, I'm kind of tired of, of, you know, everyone blaming Facebook for their woes. Yeah. Um, I'll go back to it. Don't worry. Yeah. But, uh, you know, lifestyle publishers can monetize in a bunch of different ways and I think mm-hmm. that makes them somewhat more interesting businesses mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, but give me, give me the optimist take. Sure. I think... 
beyond anything, of course, there's sort of like the excitement about what comes out of all of these new video platforms and how everyone's evolving. And I think amongst the consolidation, some of the, the digital brands will really shine. But beyond that, it's it's the fact that I'm proud that we have a direct relationship with our consumer that is real and authentic. We never just went for that reach play that was like buying traffic um, every single month. We we really know our audience. I am the audience. I literally send hundreds of messages a day back and forth with our audience. And I truly believe that the brands who go so deep will have the most success because this generation can call BS more than any and they want to find that sort of comfort in a brand that understands them and knows them and will walk with them through a journey. So I'm excited that we've been one of the first to diversify early on. It was Mm -hmm. in that first business plan and we're well on our way. We're very close to profitability and for that, we get to control our own future. Okay. Brett, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. This show is produced by Aditi Songle. I want to give a shout out this week to Dana Dobble, who tweeted to say, totally inspired by Houdinki's business model and Ben Clymer's work at Digiday's podcast. Thanks for another fine episode. Thank you, Dana. And since you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you headed over to iTunes or wherever you got this podcast and leave us a review. This helps our podcast be discovered. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. Thank you again for listening. We will be back next week with a new episode.